Welcome to Murder by Nature, where we discuss true crime, mystery disappearances, and unsolved cases. I'm Jasmine Hernandez, your host. Today is just not the day. I do not want to do this. I'm in a very bad mood, but I've already missed one, so I'm going to keep tracking along and getting this story out, because this story is one that I think should be told. It covers stalking, murder, and just the unknown of what happened. So I'm going to put that out as a trigger. Um, I know some people have had to go through stalking, uh, myself included, and this can kind of go back with flashbacks to that. So I'm just going to put that out there for you guys right now. I want to thank you guys for listening and being a part of this community and continuously growing our followers every single day. And especially when we release new episodes, so that's kind of exciting. But with this, um, I am going to release like a short on TikTok right after this post at 9 a.m. on Saturday. And then I will release it to my Instagram with images of the victim and everything else that I have been able to find. So if you want to see those, go check that out and give us a follow. Now, our references for today are conspiracytheory.in, truecrimeedition.com, ojp.gov, Wikipedia, Crime Traveler, the True Crime Database, The Cinematic, and then we have The Ranker, Reddit, ocssheriff.com, newspapers.com, news.google.com, and newspapers.com, clip 9926681, The Los Angeles Times. Stalking, there's many forms. From searching someone's social media profiles to watch them walk around the school, but sometimes they're more intense, making you look over your shoulder and locking your doors at night. The people you've passed with relationships or have always just watched you from afar, those are the people that you always kind of get nervous about. In the United States, more than 10% of our population has been stalked at some point in their life. 89% of the female victims who have been physically assaulted also have been stalked in the past 12 months by their murderer. 79% of abused victims report being stalked during the same time that they were being abused, and 54% of female victims reported stalking to police before they were killed by their stalker. Now, I know I've gone through this, and I was young, and I wasn't really sure what was happening. Um... But now as an adult and you look back at those things, it kind of is just eye-opening to how stalking can really change the perspective of your life. Most of the time, the victims will report this to the police and the police are aware, but there's nothing that they can do until the person actually physically harms you. I will say now, in a case that just happened maybe a month ago, the police did something about it. Not because he was stalking to the point of chasing her down the street, but because he took those threats of being stalked and going directly to his social media profiles for it. And that's why the police got involved with everything that was happening that day. So with that, we're going to jump into our story. For months, Dorothy Jane Scott has received phone calls from the same mysterious admirer at her workplace. The voice sounded vaguely familiar, but she just couldn't place who it was. Sometimes he expressed fawning, 
fawning admiration and saying, oh my God, he loves her. And the other times, resentment and violence. He told her that he was trailing her wherever she went and he described details of her daily activities to prove it. Dorothy was born on April 23rd, 1948. She was a single mother living in Stanton, California with her aunt and four-year-old son. She was a secretary for two jointly owned Anaheim stores, one that sold psychedelic items like lava beads, lava lamps, that stuff, and another was a head shop. Dorothy worked in the back office and led a life far less colorful than the tie-dye shirts and multicolor bongs sold at the other end of the store. She was a dependable worker and by all accounts, a kind-hearted, compassionate person. She was a devoted Christian and she didn't find drinking or doing drugs to be something that interested her even in this time that she was in. She would rather be at home with her son. Her parents, who lived in Anaheim at the time, would babysit their grandson while Dorothy was working. Little did everyone know, the woman that didn't date was having trouble. The 32-year-old secretary was frightened that someone had been calling her for months. Someone would call her daily and threaten to cut her into bits. They stalked her closely, sometimes detailing every move in his terrifying calls. One call shook Dorothy to the core. The stalker called and told Dorothy to go outside. He had a surprise for her. Cautiously, Dorothy made her way outside to her car where she found a single dead rose on the windshield. This terrified her, finally to the point of calling the police. She didn't know where to turn or how to protect herself or her son. As the police came to investigate the situation, they let her know that since he hadn't physically harmed her, there was no way for them to really help at this point. See, that that's what ends up killing a lot of these victims. The stalker wouldn't stay on the phone long enough to be traced, and they had no, no idea who he might be. Then Dorothy received a call that really freaked her out. Her stalker stated, Okay now, you're going to come my way, and when I get you alone, I will cut you into bits so no one will ever find you. Unsure of how to move forward, Dorothy started taking karate classes to equip herself in the event that something did happen. So I also want to put right here, too, that Dorothy ended up going and looking at guns because she was at this point where she didn't know what to do. And a little bit of a backstory. Before Dorothy got pregnant and had her son, she was a, I say hippie, that's, I love, I love that word. She was a hippie. She ended up going and protesting and trying to build everyone's rights. Every Everything you got to see in that sense, that's what she was doing. And then she got pregnant. And it said that the father of her child lived in a different state. I think it was like Missouri. And he wasn't really involved in her son's life or her life for that matter. And that's why she relied so heavily on her parents and why she took like a step back from going out there and being an advocate. And not only that, she was a big introvert, so it was really hard for her to do extroverted things. On May 28th, 1980, it was like any other day, except Dorothy had to go to work for a company meeting. She got ready and headed to her parents' house to drop off her son and then headed to work. The meeting was like any other day until Dorothy noticed her co-worker Conrad looking ill. She continued to watch him through the meeting, getting sicker and sicker to the point that his hand inflamed from what appeared to be a spider bite. At this point, she asked him if he's okay or if he wants to go to the hospital. 
Knowing that this can be a long stay, Pam offered to go with the pair to the hospital, and the trio got into Dorothy's white 1973 Toyota station wagon and drove to UCI Medical Center. Now, on the way to the hospital, Dorothy knew she had to stop by her parents' house. She had to check on her son and let them know where she was going, that she was going to be late, and that she was just taking a friend to the She kissed her son goodnight, and she ended up stopping and getting her red scarf. She had a black one on, but she knew that the red was going to be a little bit warmer for her as she walked out the door. When they arrived at the hospital, the doctors determined that Conrad was bitten by a black widow. And as Dorothy and Pam waited in the lobby until Conrad was ready to go home, everything seemed to be going normal. Around 11 p.m., Conrad was finally released from the hospital, but noticing that he was still very ill, she decided that it was best if Pam and Conrad filled his prescription and waited at the exit for her to bring her car around. As the two went to the pharmacy, Dorothy made her way to the restroom and then out to the car. When Pam and Conrad came back around to the exit, they thought they would see Dorothy waiting there, but she wasn't. Strange to them, they decided that maybe she got held up and started walking towards the car. Suddenly, they were confronted by her vehicle driving erratically towards their direction with the headlights on full beam, blinding them as they waved their arms in the air to get her attention. The driver never stopped. As the vehicle swerved past them, making a sharp right turn out of the parking lot, confused by the situation, Pam and Conrad thought maybe an emergency had happened with her son. Her son was only four years old, and the two decided to remain at the hospital for two hours, thinking she would return, but she never did. Finally, Pam decided it was time to call Dorothy's parents and ask if they had any contact with their daughter. When Dorothy's mom answered the phone, she was confused. Dorothy wasn't there, and this was the people that she was with last. They hadn't heard from her. She was taking them to the hospital, and they were worried. They were like, wait a second, wait a second. Pam and Conrad decided it was time they called the police and reported Dorothy missing. The police took the initial report, but they didn't really take the report seriously. Dorothy was an adult, and just because she was not there didn't mean that something had happened to her. It wasn't until 4.30 a.m. on May 29th, five hours since Dorothy was last seen, that the police and family started to get very concerned. Ten miles from the hospital, the police had reported a vehicle on fire, and as the officers arrived on the scene, they found Dorothy's white 1973 Toyota station wagon engulfed in flames burning in an alley, but no signs of anyone in the car or at the scene. The police knew that this was either a kidnapping or an elaborate plan for her to run away. Several search parties immediately started as they looked for Dorothy, but nothing came from them. Jacob and Verna Scott, which was her parents, were distraughted about their daughter's disappearance. The police told them not to speak to the press to ensure Dorothy's safe return, but that positively soon began to weigh. They feared the worst, and those feelings grew even more devastating when on January 4th, a week after she went missing, they received a phone call from a male asking, are you related to Dorothy Scott? When her mother said she was, the caller simply added, I've got her, and then hung up. This would not be the last call the family would get from this man throughout the years. Every Wednesday for years, her parents were harassed by the caller. Sometimes he would say that he killed her, and sometimes saying that she was alive. The police installed a call recorder, but they could never trace the calls since the calls were always brief. 
They told the Scott family not to release any details about their daughter's disappearance or the phone calls to the media in order to have the upper hand with the the, it's good information, right? And they wanted to steer clear of false confessions. Now, on June 12th, 1980, things kind of took a turn. I don't want to say for the worst, but they took a turn. Dorothy's dad got in touch with the Santa Ana Register and he wanted something ran on his daughter. He felt like there wasn't enough being done in the case and he wanted it out there. He wanted people to know and he wanted tips to come in. And they ran the story. But on that same day, June 12th, 1980, Pat Riley, an editorial manager for the Santa Ana Registry, received a phone call from a man claiming to have killed Dorothy. The caller said, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having anyone else. I killed her. The caller then revealed clues that had been withheld from the public about the night Dorothy was abducted. He knew about Conrad's spider bite and the color of Dorothy's scarf, the one she changed before heading to the hospital. They also claimed that Dorothy had called them from the hospital, and this was the only detail that didn't fit. So now, if you remember, Pam and Dorothy were together the entire time, and Pam claimed that she was with her the whole night at the hospital, and she never made a phone call. So unless Dorothy made a call between using the bathroom and retrieving the call, this just didn't happen outside of the mind of her doctor. He felt like they were in a relationship and that taking another man to the hospital was in fact an act of infidelity. The phone call to Pat Riley baffled Dorothy's family and friends. They told authorities that they had no knowledge of Dorothy having a boyfriend, let alone alone time for one, with her two jobs and her son to look after. Police believe that the person who called the Santa Ana Register was her killer, though. So we're going to pause right here for a second. Because the one thing I think that a lot of people that are listening to this that are a little bit younger, they're probably thinking, it's so easy for her to call from the bathroom. I had to yawn right there. But in reality, it wasn't. Back in this day, there was no such thing as cell phones. They didn't have cell phones. If you wanted to make a phone call, you call from a landline to another landline. And now if Pam is telling the truth and Dorothy was with her the whole night until that little pivoted window of her going to the restroom and then going to the car, there would be no way for her to call someone at their house from the hospital line without one, no one else knowing. And two, for them to have a conversation, argue, and then be able to get to the hospital in time because there's maybe a five minute window. So that's what's always kind of been this weird part of this killer confession. So we'll get back to our story. Years passed with no answers on what happened with their daughter. The family wanted to believe that the caller was telling the truth when they said that she was alive, though. They kept their phone number the same just in case he would allow them to speak to their daughter until one day the caller slipped up and called in the evening, only to find Dorothy's dad on the other end. The caller hung up and they didn't get a phone call again for four months. Now, there are theories that the caller got scared when Jacob answered, or they felt like Jacob could identify who he was. So this is another thing in this case. They always felt like the family knew who did this to their daughter, that with the way that he had all this information, he was watching them, he had their phone number, he knew this family. 
And that's why when she would get those phone calls, she would say, I know this voice, but I can't pinpoint it. I feel like maybe after he was continuously calling and calling and calling, maybe he stopped talking to them while he was in person to not get slipped up. And maybe he was close to her parents and knew that the father would identify exactly who he was. So four years after Dorothy's disappearance in August of 1984, a construction worker who was digging up an area to add a new telephone pole discovered the remains of a dog in the Santa Canyon Road, approximately 13 miles away from UC Irvine Medical Hospital. As he kept digging, he found a second set of bones, but this time it was the body of a partially burned human. As the police arrived, they found a turquoise ring and a watch that stopped working at 12.30 a.m. on May 29th, about an hour after Pam and Conrad finally saw Dorothy. Both the items were linked back to Dorothy Jane Scott. Investigators believed that the burn marks weren't from an attempt to like burn the body. Even though her car was on fire, they don't believe that that's what happened. They believed it was actually the result of a brush fire that happened in October of 1982, which destroyed about 125 homes in the area. This gave police an idea of how long the body had been there. To fully confirm that this was Dorothy, they pulled the dental records that confirmed it was. The autopsy was never able to confirm the actual cause of her death, but the parents felt a sense of relief when they found the body. They said, before you don't know whether she was or she wasn't, it was a big relief, one hell of a relief. Two days after the body was found, the family got another call. The caller asked, is Dorothy there? And hung up. At her memorial service, where the there were a few bones that was able to be like excavated from the site that could be buried in her casket. Dorothy's brother stepped up to the podium. I spent time with her in her last days, a lot of time, began Jim Scott. To me, she amplified the word give. She would just give and give and give, no matter what it cost her. She spent her last hours giving and being concerned about others. No one has been charged with the murder of Dorothy Jane Scott, but there has been one strong theory or suspect that her son believes is responsible for his mother's death. So her son ended up going a few years ago to another podcast and talking about who he thinks was the murderer. So we're going to go into the kind of that theory. Mike Butler, his sister and him worked at the shop with Dorothy Mike had become obsessed with her. He lived in the nearby mountains and it is rumored that he was an unstable individual and perhaps involved in cult-like activities. Now, Dorothy's son claims law enforcement had their eye on this guy, but they never had enough information to arrest him. Scott believes that Butler is the stalker and the killer. He says that Mike Butler ran across Scott father so Dorothy Scott's father and that's why that he, that's why he hung up because when Jacob answered the phone he was afraid that Jacob would recognize his voice he knew him that and it comes back at this theory it kind of sticks with me a little bit because it all comes back now Mike Butler was working at the same place and he had the opportunity to follow her know her schedule because it linked up closely with his sisters and he had an excuse to come around the area 
The only issue is that there's no hard evidence to support this. Theory. Like the, nothing was left behind. There's no fingerprints, anything. There's none of that. But looking into this theory, he was able to know everything. He knew their phone numbers. He had access to her schedule. He had access to her. He knew exactly what she was wearing in that meeting on Reddit is where these theories kind of pop up. And there's another one. Um, and it makes sense. So the night that Dorothy went missing, they had a work meeting. They were all sitting around talking. And it is a theory that maybe her murderer was in that room. And when they saw her giving attention to Conrad about a spider bite, they got erratic and they couldn't control the way that they were feeling and they snapped because they knew what she was wearing beforehand. And then she went home and she changed and they knew what she was wearing then. So that's a theory that's really floating around Reddit that I don't feel like the police took seriously. They never interviewed the people from her job. They just kind of, with whatever leads kind of came from them. I don't feel like there was a lot of investigation done to this, just simply for the fact that they felt like she was okay until they found her car. But even then, they just, the research that was done, or at least the research that I was able to find, it doesn't seem like there was much done. In November of 1994, on Dorothy's birthday, her father, Jacob Scott, passed away. Verna Scott passed away in 2020, in 2002, 22 years after her daughter's abduction. They never discovered what happened to Dorothy or who was responsible. This case remains unsolved. Now, tips can be called in to the Orange County Crime Stoppers website, which I'm going to link in the transcript as well as in my TikTok and my Instagram, but it's www.occrimestoppers.org. Now, like I was saying before, the police didn't have many leads, but one that came up during the investigation was also different than Mike Butler. Two years after the disappearance of Dorothy Scott, Patricia Steinen went missing on July of 1982. Before her disappearance, Patricia called saying that her car was broken down and that there was, but then there was no news. No one heard from Patricia again. Her car was found a few hours later on a fire in a field, just as Dorothy's car had been found. Similar to Dorothy, there was no signs of Patricia at the scene, and she was suspected of being kidnapped, maybe from the same person that took Dorothy. However, the majority of differences that was discovered between Patricia's case and Dorothy's case is that Patricia's family never received any threatening phone calls in her disappearance still remains unsolved. They've never found her body, anything. I will cover this case on a TikTok or in a podcast because I feel like this one has to be known. And I just want to see if there was anything else that was happening in their lives that could have linked them together just slightly. Now my thoughts on this case. As I said in the beginning, I've dealt with a stalker and I was young. I was 11 to 12 years old and I would have someone, I don't know who they are still to this day. I have no idea who this person is, but I know that they drove because we would get phone calls to my house and they would call and ask for me and they would call late 
And sometimes I would have friends over and my mom would tell them, oh, she's not home, she's not home. And then we'd hear someone drive by the front of the house, call back and tell my mom exactly what I was doing in my room. It got to the point that my room was in the front of the house and my my windows were out to the street and they would knock on my windows. They would knock on our front door. <clears throat> they would just watch me, everything I was doing. So that's why I want to cover cases like this. I want to make sure that we're bringing light to these things that police don't really take seriously until they're too late. For me, luckily, we moved and I never heard from the person again because my mom took what was going on serious. I don't know if most families do that. And I mean, I was 12 years old. I didn't want to move. I was pissed. I didn't care. I was flattered. But I was 12. I didn't know the severity of what could happen in that situation. And most girls don't at that age. They want someone that's going to fawn over them and take care of them. They're not realizing what actually is happening. The obsession that grows with stalking and everything else that kind of comes in between. So if you are being stalked or if you feel like someone is stalking you, Please make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Report it to family, individuals, and the police, and continuously do so. I will say, make sure that you have some form of protection on you at all times, because you never know when that obsession is going to turn deadly. Now that brings us to the end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to Murder by Nature. If you enjoyed our show, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any streaming platform that you're currently on. Be sure to come back next Saturday for our new episode. Until then, I am your host, Jasmine Hernandez. Don't forget to stay safe. Don't get murdered or murder people, you lovely humans. Have a wonderful Saturday.